Happy Chinese New Year. Oh yeah, Happy Chinese New Year. That's the most important thing. Good health. Good health, man. This is Making It Up, a podcast where we tell you what's happening in creative culture and why it matters. I'm Sharice Poon, and my co-host is Eugene Kan. We don't always have all the answers, but we try our best to reach a conclusion that adds value to the conversation. If you like this podcast, please share an episode with a friend. We really appreciate it. You should translate that to other oh, people. Oh, uh, Hong is like a really common Chinese wish for good health. And people say it all the time. But then especially yeah, this like, year, obviously, because of the coronavirus outbreak. There's so much stuff going on. Yeah, especially in the last, like, I don't know, last week has been pretty intense. I think our listeners would care. How are you doing slash your family? And what is it like? I mean, it's like, I don't know, man. It's, it's, this is like the, the last six months have been this daily battle with media, not necessarily media, like as an industry, it's more like your personal involvement and relationship with media. Mm. So, I mean, it's, it's a super deep topic because it's like, dude, you can turn on the news any single day and you're like, Hey, you know what? Is this real? Is it not? Especially when you start expanding outside you start coloring outside the lines right you you go beyond just the established publications and media companies and not to say everyone is how do i put this it's like there's going to be agendas it's one thing and then there's obviously a certain foundation of objectivity and fact yeah but like once you start looking outside of that then it can get really murky really well, fast my argument my question, sorry, not argument. My question would be, why are you looking outside of that? Well, I think you're just naturally interested. And it's just like, I sometimes it, you don't look for it either. You could be like in a WhatsApp group and someone that doesn't have this, the same sort of standards. And I say this standards, not necessarily like to, to, to look down on other people's media habits, but it's like, if you quote unquote work in media, you have different checks and balances as to what you'll share. Cause you just, maybe go one or two steps further to verify whether this is authentic, if it's real. But you yeah. can't stop someone sending you something they saw or a video. They they were like, oh, this just happened. And it's like a video from three years ago and it was on a movie set, Yeah, right? You yeah. can't really control that. So I think that in general, like in terms of the severity of what's going on now, like I'm not that worried about it, mm-hmm. but it's not to say like I'm not taking precautions. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah, I'll, I'll go out in a surgical mask or whatever, and I'll do that all other stuff. But wash your hands. Engine. Exactly. Like all that stuff, you you definitely elevate and you 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 make more of a conscious effort. But I I think that what's most interesting is just like the the sort of narratives on the side that are outside the realm of just this health crisis, and it becomes like this cultural battle. I think. Well. I mean, not that you were asking me for advice, but I just feel like, at least for the coronavirus, paying attention to that side narrative is probably not doing you any favors in terms of like your personal well-being. Uh, yeah. Like, I just don't like, feel like you need to spend energy thinking, which I un- I understand what you're referring to and agree that it is interesting. But I feel like well, if wait, you try to tackle well, you, everything that you're thinking What am thinking I referring about, to when I, when I say side narratives and all that other stuff? Well, the things we were talking about, about like non-standard media and people passing on information that is not necessarily verified and the kind of atmosphere that's created. Uh, I think there's definitely, like, I, I kind of actually, this was the thing that I... I discussed a lot and this is kind of a very heavy debatable topic, but I was like, oh, you know what? Like for sure, 2020 onwards, there's going to be an even greater divide and there's going to be like even greater sinophobia, I think globally. And this is like, this, it doesn't help, right? No. Everything that's sort of coming, 
but also think that sinophobia oh, it itself help. will also will also trickle down into like a there, there, there's going to be residual damage like it doesn't matter if you're chinese if you just look chinese yeah. then you're also going to bear the brunt of it yeah uh, and I, I was going to say like that's something that i'm it, it's weird to say you're preparing yourself for it so much as like well you're trying to understand like where where things will fall right like i think that you can have yeah. this very pessimistic outlook as to where this world's going yeah and it's nationalism has always has been in the cards for the last since 2016 whatever right like let's not get too political and so much as like hey it's it's kind of been growing rather than regressing yeah and you just know that the things are compounding currently and like man it's not gonna get any better and i, I personally like you and i are also in this weird contentious place where we were kind of really at the crossroads like you grew up in hong kong you're going to be moving to the united states i live in hong kong and i obviously grew up in the western world but i also am starting to see like all these things in front of me and i don't really know how to make sense of it even psychologically it can be challenging it's like well are you a canadian are you a chinese person are you a hong kong person like all these things like kind of fuck with you a little bit and you have to kind of really come to terms with like well what do i feel comfortable with and i don't think i know where i stand right now because these are new these are generally new thoughts that have emerged right new thoughts and for you're, you you're, you're kind of, well it's more that you kind of saw it coming but then wait, wait, you wait, wait. Pushed. back up back up because you were just talking yeah. about identity and so that would have to be like new thoughts specific to you i think it's more along the lines of you knew whatever you thought was a balance point and you were like hey this is who i am suddenly you've been pushed in a way where like your identity might still need to fit within the general structures that are being created on people's identity and association so like you kind of need to understand that if you are this identity and like you identify as this type of person but the rest of the world is starting to look in a certain way at that type of category if that makes sense i don't know if i should use actual specific terms because i'm trying to make sure like the reason why it doesn't come that quickly to me is that like the specificity of the terms are still being developed in my own mind mm. but what i'm trying to say is that like hey you know what if you personally think like hey i feel very comfortable being this sort of very fluid um person who's ethnically chinese but doesn't actually believe in the construct of of I guess country identity, you know what I mean? Like mm. that is a thing that because I've said this before. It's like I think right now the things that actually unify us more, like tax brackets and like in some ways mm -hmm. your 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 ability to travel mm. and see the world. So you don't mm -hmm. really see yourself as like, oh, you know what? I'm well, a Hong Kong person. You, I so much. Maybe like you fit. don't. Maybe you don't. But I think there are people out there who still do see themselves and, aligned to a country and. To address, well, I've thought a lot about this growing up, if this helps, yeah. because I grew up in Hong Kong, but I grew up speaking English better than my Cantonese, but my family is from Hong Kong. And so um, essentially, I've always considered myself to be like 100% entirely a Hong Kong native, born and raised. But to a lot of Hong Kong people, I don't present that way. They don't see me as yeah. that. But even though they don't see me as that, I insist that I am. Because I, I think that I, I tick the boxes in my mind for what it takes to be from Hong Kong and to be a native. Which, which, is, which is fine, but I, what I'm trying to say is that at some point in time, if you encounter people that don't have an understanding of that, of that standing and, and what you represent, then you kind of have to defer to well, what's something they will understand. Right, and I think that's where I don't think you have to defer to what someone else understands if you have a strong grasp of who you think you are. I think you do at some point because it's like you're going to position yourself in a certain way where, like, hey, you know what? You kind of need to. You there's going to be like a process of education. I think for people to understand that how you stand and where your identity is relative to the world currently is something they can wrap their heads around. Now, I guess I get it. Like, you could also just not engage with this person. That's totally fucking fine. Like, it depends on it, the context of which you're referring yeah. to and, like, why I need to have an explanation to this person about my identity. Yeah. But I guess, regardless, it's like 
when you do have access to more information or you just seek it out, right? You're, you're naturally seeking it out. Like you can't really defer to ignorance as bliss anymore. And I think I've mentioned that before. It's like, you can't really just like turn the, well, and I think people have mentioned this, like when I was, when I was in Shanghai a few weeks ago, I actually felt very different because like I wasn't for two reasons. Like it was just harder to access information. I was like, and I was always on the go. Like I didn't have my, my usual media diet. And I actually felt in some ways a lot more at ease knowing not knowing because yeah. I didn't have access to it. Well, but I feel like in your life in Hong Kong, you could also create that for yourself. And I know that this wound up being a larger talk about sinophobia in the future, which I do think we should spend some time thinking about. But if we were talking like specifically about the coronavirus, like I don't think it is helpful to your own psychological well-being to spend too much time looking at what other people are sending or engaging in those conversations. And I just don't think it's necessary. Yeah. On the point of the coronavirus thought and then going back to what you said about like this bigger picture of kind of concerns for the future and you referred to sinophobia, the increasing fear of Chinese people, point of sinophobia, I actually had the same thought about what the coronavirus does for people's perceptions because I'm in London and I live in a part of the city that is not particularly Asian. I was thinking about that in the grocery store yesterday where I'm fairly confident I was maybe one of, out of two Chinese people in an otherwise full supermarket. And another, I don't know, like someone around me coughed or sneezed. And then I thought to myself, oh, I probably should not cough or sneeze as much as possible in a public area because if people, I mean, I, I don't know, this could just be in my head, but my thought process was literally like, if I sneeze and people look at me and they see that I'm Chinese, then they're going to be afraid. Yeah. No, I, I think that's 100% valid. And that I, I didn't even, like, it was just like, I didn't, that thought just like really naturally came to my mind. And it's just weird. Like, th this is another thing too. It's that in certain instances where you feel like there's a, there's the opportunity for you to get judged, you also rely on certain tools and tactics. Like, yeah. if you were with a friend, you probably would just start speaking English and just like treat that cough as nothing because you know that when people hear you have like an American Canadian accent, suddenly that diffuses the situation into itself, yeah. right? And I think that's like the complexity of it all is like, you, we've talked about this before, The there's a massive privilege that comes with being able to speak English, mm -hmm. right? Definitely. And that's a privilege you can rely on in a circumstance like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That I understand more when we're talking about like, the shifting of identity in those like kind of micro ways and, and, and in ways that are a little bit like self-defense more than in like a one-on-one -on -one conversation with someone where you have like the time to explain yourself. But in like the social situations like that, I think without even thinking, I would start using certain signals to like decrease how people might perceive me or like to manage that. Yeah. So Yeah. Well, that was an interesting sidebar. Uh, that's not that's yeah. not one of our subjects for today. <laughs> yeah, actually, both subjects today are pretty interesting. I'm pretty excited, actually. Yeah, as excited as one can be for a podcast. People get excited, right? Actually, I don't know. I don't know if other people who record podcasts yeah. get excited to record. Yeah, I can go first. So. I don't really know what I want to use for the title of this subject. I'm sorry. Uh, my subject this week is about a book called American Dirt. American Dirt was published this month by Janine Cummins. It is on track to be a commercial success. It was recently number four on Amazon. The blurb about it is essentially that it's a novel about a Mexican mother and her son who flee for the U.S. after a drug cartel kills their family. They are a middle-class family, and then suddenly they become nothing, essentially, that they, they have no class, and they need to leave the country, and so they head towards the border. That's the story in a nutshell. I've not read the book, by the way, so everything mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. comes after this is just what other people have said about the book. And Will you read the book? I've thought about that. Can we hold on to that question until I get to yeah. the crux? Because for people who are listening, they don't know the crux of the issue yet. So Janine Cummins, the author, said, this is a quote, the idea of this book for me was to remember the humanity of migrants. And I feel like so often the conversation in this country 
when it comes to migration and immigration turns around a very specific kind of stereotype. And I wanted to make sure that Lydia was a character who could turn that stereotype on its ear, that she would be counter to our typical sort of notions of what a migrant looks like. So when the book came out, there was a lot of variety in reception. There were definitely people who really loved this book. It was on Oprah's book club. Uh, the author went on to the Oprah show to talk about it. But then there were a lot of Latinx authors and critics who said, actually, we don't think that this story is representative of the migrant experience and the range of criticism. So the criticism goes like all kinds. It goes from like direct vitriol towards the author saying that she's white and therefore has no right to tell this story. And then it goes to the novel is just bad regardless of whether the author's intentions are good or not. Some people were like, the book is just not a, a well-written book and therefore people shouldn't read it because it's not even like well-written. So it goes all sorts. Um, I'm going to read a quote from a critic. This person is from the LA Times. Did you mention, did you mention the fact that this book itself is a fiction? I think I'm pretty sure they called it a novel, which is the word that we use for fiction. A novel. <laughs> Sorry, okay, that was patronizing. It. Yeah, it's sure. a fiction book. It's a novel. Um, so the LA Times has a critic named Esmeralda Bermudez. She's an immigrant herself. And she said, American Dirt has left us with a textbook example of nearly everything we should avoid when writing about immigrants. It is hollow, harmful, and adrenaline-packed cartoon. In 17 years of journalism, in interviewing thousands of immigrants, I've never come across anyone like American Dirt's main character. She's this middle-class bookstore-owning woman who left Mexico with a small fortune in her pocket like she was going to go to France or something, with inheritance money, with an ATM to her mom's life savings. And why did she leave? Because she was flirting with a drug lord who's now trying to kill her. This is a wonderful, melodramatic telenovela, something I would love watching for cheap entertainment, like a narco-thriller on Netflix. But this should not be called by anyone, quote, the great immigrant novel, the story of our time, the grapes of wrath. Why? How do we get to a point in our industry, in the book industry, in society, that this is the low standard that we have? So there's two things I actually wanted to talk about in connection to other things that I've been reading that I didn't send to you because it would have been too much reading to send to you 30 minutes before recording. One is a piece I really like, which I think you should read later, called How to Unlearn Everything by Alexander Chi. And he's a Korean-American author. And he said that he often gets asked by audience members when he does talks and things, do you have any advice for writing about people who do not look like you? And he says, you know, there's actually a lot of writing out there on this subject. But uh, since people keep asking me this question, I'm going to turn it back to them and ask these people three questions to see if it helps clarify why they want to write this story. So the three questions that he he suggests are, why do you want to write from this character's point of view? Do you read writers from this community currently? And why do you want to tell this story? And I think what's interesting is that there's no reason why Cummins can't write a book about people who don't look like her. Like, as in, it's not illegal, right? You can do that as an author. Correct. I can do yeah. that. You can do that. We can all choose to do that. We can, like, we could write about from a white person's perspective, because neither of us are white, for example. The thing I would question, though, is really, like, I think what is interesting is to think about, well, what was her intention behind writing this story? Like, why... Did she feel like she needed to be the person to tell this story? And it's what's interesting is that she says herself, you know, like there's this dangerous stereotype in the United States. I wanted to present a character that wasn't that stereotype. And so what I think is interesting to think about there is like the stereotype that she knows comes from a certain perspective. So therefore, her counter to that stereotype is a counter to something that is actually already false. Does that make sense? Like she's internalized this stereotypical image of an immigrant that the United States presents. And she doesn't specify, but I'm going to go out there and say that the stereotype she's referring to is this idea of 
South American migrants as greedy and selfish and dangerous, right? And that's like part of the U.S. conversation about migration. Mm -hmm. And so she wants to counter that. And I think that she overcorrected or was fighting a stereotype by creating a character that was just meant to be an argument against the stereotype rather than really looking into like what the truth is. Got it. I have more to say, but I also feel like I've been talking for a long time. Yeah. I don't know if it's too early to kind of just drill home. The main point that I couldn't really look past was that since it was a novel and it wasn't as though she was trying to actually go in and create anything but a novel, I'm not sure that any of the backlash is warranted. I don't... Right? I think you can warrant... No, I hold on. I, I should preface that too because it's like... I think you can question you can question whether the book is good or bad, maybe from a creative perspective, but from whether it appropriates culture, I think that one's a stretch. To I, be honest, I disagree. And the, the the thing it's not a fiction the thing that's, that's, that's going off okay, on my sorry, mind. Go ahead. But I think that in some ways, the way I look at it too is that it the the immediate example that popped into my mind was if I'm Chinese, am I unable to go and do American barbecue? Right, because I don't come from that background. Go, going yourself even, to do American you know, barbecue is different from writing a book, but it's still a, a similar act of of taking on something and storytelling. Like I, I look at food as story, come, right? Eugene, like if come I'm on, tell the story. You mean going yourself, are to, you going yourself me? to eat American barbecue is not the same level as publishing a book and making seven figures. No, no, but off I'm saying it. me. I'm saying me be. I'm saying me becoming like a, a barbecue pit master and I open my uh, own restaurant okay. around I thought you American literally barbecue. meant going to go same, eat American no, no, no. barbecue for lunch. I was like, that's it's, not the same level at all. It's no different than like, can, can a, is it, can a, I would argue that it's still black different. Chef not be okay, a sushi I would, chef? I still argue that is a, that's the, I feel like that is a different conversation. And I'm not going to go into the, I'm not going to go too much into the food so, separate because we're, we are talking about like writing and authorship. Right. And, but I think that it's like it's very similar because you are you are undertaking someone else's culture I and telling a story. I think book's reach is much further, mm. and it's clear that she's say she herself, the author, is saying that about, the intention is to have a different conversation around migration, and immigration, and so therefore I can't think you can say that oh it's just fiction and therefore like the backlash is unwarranted because it's not fiction about like another planet or aliens or like. At the time of dinosaurs do you know what i mean like yeah that's fiction too but this fiction is clearly written about like ah. the united states and mexico and the border and sent in a contemporary time so yeah the characters are not real people but the entire thing is set up so that this could be a reflection of a real story i still don't understand why that's an issue though like i think that it's it's her perspective and her her opinion on how how this story should be represented right but i think that and that that to me is like once it was like once i read it was a fiction i was like oh man all arguments are off like i don't really care what she does like if it's a if it's a good book it's a good book if it's a bad book it's a bad book and but i don't think you can really come down on her outlook on how this whole this the whole politics are playing out so for me it's like the way else to look at it is like if if that's the case then like do are we are we not allowed to introduce different points of view because i think in general even if you were even if you were a writer of that exact ethnicity and you knew it front to back your experience informs a certain point of view and i think that that in itself is not bad but it also is not the full picture because i think other people have the ability to introduce sure. other points of view i think you're I think you're allowed to have a point of view, but I think you should be very cognizant of the fact that this author is not someone who has that as her lived experience. Which, but she it's also that book. the thing is, it's a it's a fiction, right? And I don't I, did she? I don't, I don't understand from what, what I gather. Issue, she like was never, fiction does. Do you realize that fiction in general can be written to like comment on current society? Right? It's not like fiction. Yeah, but it's not real. It's like it's wholly interpretive too right read fiction to get a reflection of the world that they live in and this is her point of view right i think that's that's what i'm trying to get at is like it's it, it to me 
they're very binary. Okay, so I think there's two things right? here that you're arguing. One is that like she can have her point of view. I agree. She can have her point of view. But you're also saying that the backlash is unwarranted, which I disagree that the backlash is unwarranted. Correct. I think it's unwarranted on the basis that because it's binary, it's either it's either objective and factual or it's not. I, d I disagree and with this. It, she's... <sighs> I don't know how to explain this to you. Like it is fiction in the sense that the characters are not real, but she's clearly referring to a real place and a real type of person. Correct. And this is something like I think that but that that becomes less of a So yes, it's it's fiction, but there's so much of it that's constructed to be an accurate reflection of current society. Do you know what I'm saying? It's done in from her her perspective though. But like, not no, like, but that's not true. That's the, hey, let me back up. Okay, not I don't know how to explain this. Like the characters might be fabricated and from her perspective, but this type of fiction book is set in a real place. And so there are a lot of elements of it that are meant to be accurate. So we can't call it nonfiction, there but are, there are a lot of parts of the book and not just this book, like other books out there that no, are written I, to be true. Does this make sense? Like people write books I about it, Hong it's, Kong it's and they make sure like the geography is correct and the timeline is correct and people wear the right clothing. No, I get that part, but I, I think that it doesn't, that doesn't, that doesn't take away from the fact that it's as much as it's trying to be period correct or is trying to have the right cultural foundation that it still is her perspective and her perspective itself is like, as long as she's not trying to deceive anyone that it, this is objective. I don't think it really even matters. Okay, but it's don't like you think her, her point of view what she said about the book about wanting it to be able to change a real conversation happening in the country that is about migration and immigration and is, is directly t tied to like policies and feelings about the people is wanting to put her point of like her point of view into how people act. But I think that she's just using a story and a narrative that she's constructed but it, yeah it's a constructed story that affects real feelings she, but then how does this even matter than like if this is a, like a love story or something that like you know what i mean I'm, I'm trying to i'm trying to understand why you have such a strong affinity for the fact that there is some sort of objectivity in this in terms of the because setting what i'm trying to say is that i what still I'm don't think it say, matters i really don't think it matters people will read it as real but they know it's not real because she never it's not like it says, oh, based on a real story. I don't know story. how to make it any more clear here. It's like maybe, maybe, maybe I'm, I'm, maybe I'm unfamiliar with people's inability to like see that. Hey, you know what? This is a story. Yes, I really am of, trying to explain that to you now. I'm not even trying to explain about her. I feel like I feel like I'm trying to explain about the way people read fiction at this moment. Like people yeah, know, like uh, if they, Eugene, just bear with me. Continue, here. continue. Okay, we're just kind of trying to put aside American Dirt for one second. People read this type of fiction, okay, that is about made-up characters but set in real places as though it is reflections of people who are like that in society, okay? Yes. And they know that it's fiction, that it's made up, but it can still bear real effects on how they feel about those countries and the people who are like the characters in the book. That I don't deny, but I don't understand why she doesn't have the ability to do that, though. Like, why is this? That's still the part I don't understand. Okay, so, but you do understand that people read fiction in ways that affect their real sure, life yeah. perspectives on things. Correct, correct. Okay. Yeah. Now, the second point about her having a point of view is, I think the backlash is against it not being a real like she not having that as a lived experience. And I think it does go a little bit about the way that she talks about the book, okay? Because I think there's one option where she openly says, hey, you know, I am of this background, like a, of this white Middle Western whatever background. I don't have this as a lived experience. I just really was interested in the subject and wanted to write this book. And I know that there are other authors out there who have that as a lived experience. And that's like one way to talk about it. Okay? And to like stand yeah. on this point of view. And that's not really what she's doing here. She's coming out to say like, I think I can make a difference in the way that people perceive migrants and immigration. And I wanted to do that. And so there are people 
there are Latinx critics who say, hey, that story actually belongs to other people. And we wish that it wasn't you who's getting so much attention and who's kind of getting this power of like telling a story that isn't yours. But, but doesn't that fundamentally change the argument where it's like basically the gatekeeping element of it? Like, hey, you know what? Like, thanks, but no thanks. Yeah. So that's you know another, I mean? like, that, I, this is that's the part a second of, so, part of this that I didn't even get to, which is about the publishing industry. So one critic who's also Latinx said that actually, hey, if publishers published out of 100 books, they published 25 by Latinos, no one would even care if American Dirt was getting press and getting attention. But because so few Latinx stories are being published by Latino authors, that's why this hurts. But then this is detracting from the argument where like, I understand there's a lot of privilege and the author of American Dirt probably had to step over some people or basically didn't step. She just went straight to the front of the line, right? But I, I think that that in itself isn't necessarily her fault. Like, does she just say, hey, I'm not going to write this out of full respect for these people? Is that, is that what would would have made people more more happy or more comfortable that is something that she says she says quote there's a lot of work to be done in the publishing industry on this front i hope to contribute what i can to that conversation in a constructive way but i don't feel like i'm responsible for the problem so i've been i've been thinking about this i've been thinking about this too like should she just not have written the book and i think that seems unfair to say like you can't write a book but it also is just as something to really reflect on, like, hey, do I want to use my privilege in this way? Like the power that I get, and this is the book that I want to publish with the power that I have. Like, I just think that you can have a really honest conversation with yourself and say, like, actually, can I use part of my power to do something else? Like, if this is a story I really care about, can I, can I spread that power around somehow? Like, can I, I don't know. I just feel like if you're an author who gets this much money and this much press, there is a way that you can also include other people in your light. Like, for example, like, could she have also at the same time championed a Latinx author to publish a a book of poetry and called it like something like a companion to American Dirt? I think there are creative ways that she could have done that. Do you know what I mean? I mean, but then that's all like, nice to bring forth after the fact after you've kind of had to go through the process of figuring out how you're supposed to develop your next step so i think that yes i agree yeah you maybe there's but something if she knew that from the beginning like if she knew from the be- i know no, i say i'm I don't giving know this if everyone predicts outrage i know that i'm giving this person a lot of responsibility but if you are a person with power don't you think that you should think carefully about how you're yeah, but then it? I think there's one thing for you to have a continued platform of power. Like, if I'm someone that I know, people are going to follow my every word. It's different for me. Like, I don't think very many people knew who this author was before this book. This is like her first time coming into this position of power. So I don't think she has a contingency plan, or does she? I don't she? know. I don't she know. got a seven-figure advance, which suggests to me that she's not a first-time author. Okay. But the one thing that we had discussed offline or not offline, but we discussed prior as we were brainstorming was like, hey, like I like some of the New York Times comment. And I think this one in itself is the one that I, I enjoyed the most out of the New York Times' comments. And it was a Times pick, which I think their editorial team selects. And it's from Brooklyn Dog Geek. I'm generally open to criticism around appropriation, but this is getting out of hand. So excuse me while I roll my eyes. If everyone only wrote, painted, filmed, sung about their own direct experience, this would be a really boring world. Get over it, people. Can you imagine how many amazing pieces of art and culture would never have been made in today's world because of the paralyzing PC-ness out there? And why is it always the woke people of other races and cultures that get bent out of shape? Of course, the two Mexican-Americans in this piece weren't upset. Miss Sanchez backpedaled because she's got thin skin. We should absolutely work towards more diversified voices. But until then, people's stories deserve to be seen and heard regardless of the creator. And the thing around this that I personally gravitate towards, and I'm speaking from experience, right? Like, I think part of my own personal quote-unquote career was actually developed off of being an outsider and coming in and trying to tell stories that I actually had 
no privy to. Like I actually had to like find a way in. And at sometimes I think that there was probably elements of it that fell short because I didn't have that lived experience. And like growing up in Canada in the middle of like nowhere, you don't have quote unquote sneaker street culture. But if that was the case and I felt like I didn't deserve it or I didn't continually work to have a place at the at the table then I probably wouldn't even be here right now, right? Like, I think that's the one thing that I can speak from what I, how I looked at the landscape. And I was like, hey, you know what? In itself, I feel like I have something to contribute. And maybe, like, I don't have any credibility at the very beginning. But let me try to convince you guys and try to build something. It may not be perfect. I may never be able to speak from the same perspective of, like, someone that's grown up in a world where every single person around them lives and breathes sneakers or resell sneakers or whatever, but I know enough around, I know enough about how things have played out to have a perspective and an outsider's perspective. Same thing around football and soccer. Like growing up in Canada, like you have to develop your own culture as to what soccer and football means to you. And then when I come to a place where people have not taken it for granted, but they've they've grown up with a team, their dad puts a scarf on them from like the day they can walk to now having to understand how I stand within that. I think that there's incredible amounts of value in you coming in with, without this sort of lived experience. And I think that that's why I argue so strongly for not really like you can, you can say she's not credible or whatever, but I think the fact that she moved past that, that's the reason why I think that this is like a non-issue. You kind of need these diversified voices that look beyond the, blind spots of people that have lived the experience i disagree i think that this <laughs> critique and also your own examples are also actually irrelevant because i think that what is happening by addressing like this comment and also your examples is broadening the argument in a way that is not helpful like i think you can have a specific conversation about american dirt and janine cummins and that specific issue without needing it to, to be about all of the writing and painting and film and every story in the world like do you see what I'm saying? Like, I think that critique is broadening that backlash to be an address to everything when actually it can be about this one specific thing. It doesn't need to be that that argument now applies to every author everywhere that's ever tried to tell a story that wasn't their own lived experience. So I I just don't think that's helpful to accuse like the back the detractors for like taking down every other piece of artwork that's out there and like accuse them of trying to keep everyone from telling stories that are not their own. And I don't think that Cummins is a diversified voice. She's a white woman in the States. I think we've heard enough on this subject from people like her, if not her specifically. I mean, diversified, like, it's just not, it's not, I think diversified needs a little bit of a, a preface and it's diversified in the sense it's not from a lived experience, right? It's an interpretive. Oh, if POV that's the case, I don't it. think we've heard enough from the people who have the lived experience to need this but now. But then we've talked about it. This is not her fault. This is the publishing industry's fault. Can, can it not that's be both? What <laughs> like, I think she should take some responsibility. I, mean, I think she's right. Like the publishing industry has a lot to do with it in like giving her this money and not publishing latinx authors but i think if she recognizes that like she should also i know i'm asking a lot but i think that she can also take some responsibility for that yes i'm trying to i'm sorry i'm just trying to like wrap my head around it and like i think that i agree okay position of power yes responsibility but i, okay, I kind of want to no, know i think you're right like i don't want to come I don't want to come off of this and like paint this woman as the, you know, the enemy because I think that she really did have good intentions. I do. And she doesn't seem like a terrible person. But even while I do think that she could still have taken a little bit more responsibility and done a little bit more. And yeah, if we want to talk like a bigger cultural picture and like for listeners to this podcast, like this is probably the most helpful thing is to say for listeners yeah. is to say that like the publishing industry should focus on other types of authors and should be more risky, I guess, in like yeah. the kinds of authors they support or like non-published authors. And if there's something that like we can do, it would be to read less read authors. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. Like the authors who are 
making lots of money. And this gets to your question at the top, like, am I going to read this book? And I'm not because I don't want to give it money. And I don't want to give it any downloads because it has enough of that, yeah. you know? And so like the only thing that I feel like I can do as a reader is to put my money towards authors that will then hopefully signal to the publishing industry that like these authors are worth more attention yeah, and of getting like the press and the money. Yeah. So that's my takeaway. For a little bit of background, Gene Cummings has written four books, including, including American Dirt. Um, and I think one of the best known ones was A Rip in Heaven, uh, which was a memoir. Mm. And I think that I, I think my expectations for what Cummings should have done, I, I think it's more like, what does she do in the, in the coming months slash the next moves going yeah. forward? I, I think for me, it's too early for me to judge, but I think she seems somewhat level-headed. I think for me, it's like the stereotypical perspective of how she interprets this is like is a little bit tough i think like people i think that's where a lot of people initially had an issue with the book was that oh this is so stereotypical right but yeah on that same note it's like if you don't have a lived experience like you interpret things a certain way and maybe it's really challenging to like deconstruct stereotypes or maybe these stereotypes to you are stereotypes from within a lived community but from the outside, it's maybe less or yeah. known. So, yeah. I don't that's know. What, that's what something I feel like I said as well. It's like, we don't even realize our own biases, right? Like, but then she decided that she was going to work to overcome her internal biases. And she did say that, like, she kept in mind her perspective. But I think sometimes it's, like, so ingrained in you that it can be dangerous because you don't even realize, like, how it's coming out, like, yeah. in your writing. So. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go to yours. All right. That was a pretty intense one, Charisse. That was good. We haven't had a, we have to have some arguments sometimes. Got to keep true. people interested. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> I remember, I, I like how it was going off for about like two minutes and then you just shut me down. Like, no. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay, noted. My subject is why aren't waiters given the respect or salary they deserve? So this is a piece by Claire Finney published in the guardian. It discusses the idea that the waiting staff in the restaurant can make or break a meal just as much as the people in the kitchen. Yet they are rarely celebrated and quite often traduced for those that are unfamiliar with the word traduced, which I was one of them. It means Same. it means to speak badly of or tell lies about someone so as to damage their reputation. Mm. It's kind of interesting when you come across a word that is very easy to read, but it's a word you're not familiar with. I feel like I've never seen that word before. I've never seen it before either. Anyways, the piece starts off by asking, name a successful chef. Let, let's ask you right now, name a successful chef. Guy Fieri. Sure, right? <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> I think it's pretty easy to rifle off a few names. Um, and for our non-american listeners guy fieri is the epitome of bad american food mm. oh guy fieri would be so hurt he seems like a good guy he's but a yeah, good he guy made a, he, yeah i watch bon appetit and he apparently makes a dish called trash can nachos oh where you make good. like a tower of nachos and the way you form it is in a trash can sounds sounds disgusting but Sorry, anyways keep going Irrelevant, um, irrelevant. <laughs> it continues to highlight how across Europe, the front of house and waitstaff are clearly overlooked despite bringing like storytelling expertise and what I like to say, a sense of EQ 
to the experience and the table. So for me, mm-hmm. EQ is actually pretty important because it's like, are you able to go into work and read tables? Like I, I, a lot of my friends that work in service, like I really like to talk to them about this and kind of understand the the art around understanding and servicing different quote unquote clients or customers, right? Um, and to me, like I, I really enjoy front of house because to me, to me, it's like they set the vibe and they're also responsible for telling the story of the chef. Um, they're kind of like a mouthpiece or, or a communicator. Yeah. And, they're crucial. Yeah. And the way I look at it is, and I, I was thinking about this and like, oh yeah, I, I totally see this relationship play out in different industries. And I use the world of like design or like sneaker design, right? Where the sneaker designer is often put on a pedestal, but everyone that makes it come to life, whether it's the developer, um, the marketing team, like they're, just as crucial but they rarely have any sort of i guess i don't know i put this like they don't really get the same amount of shine basically i mean it happens in a lot of industries like if you think about the the director of a movie for example correct so much goes into making a movie but usually we just know the director yeah actually hold on to that thought because it it's directly relevant to a point i want to make later here was a really interesting passage uh from the piece and it's told from a british point of view given it's the guardian Few British families can afford to show their kids a good waiter or maitre d', I said that in a very American way, at work, mm-hmm. nor is it something we see much of as adults in a culture that prioritizes speed over service. Many of us claim to be foodies, yet the twin pressures of time and money mean the foodiness is more likely to manifest itself at a street food stall or no reservations high turnover joint than at a high-end restaurant like The Frog. So I, I think that's quite valid. It's like... Nowadays, to be a foodie doesn't necessarily mean the full spectrum, right? It's like kind of this mid-tier and below, right? But I think service is something that is traditionally seen at the higher end. Yeah. And I I hate to say it again, but like this also is important. This one point about uh, it being something that's associated with finer dining. Yeah. So another interesting thing too is that I think that Britain will come to terms with the fact that with Brexit looming, they're going to need to fill a lot of positions because they won't have this free sort of migration of labor. Um, And they'll need to boost this sector essentially. And I think that one way to think about this challenge is redefining the industry and the definition around it. Uh, And this Mm -hmm. means like, what is service? And it's Something that arguably doesn't always need to be associated with finer dining. I say finer, like both fine and below. It's something that actually can be a part of the dining experience across the board. So Hilary Reisenberg, the editor-in-chief of The Infatuation, she suggests that service these days isn't about the provenance of your silverware or the formality of a meal. It's about paying attention to what diners actually want and making them feel welcome. But when you get it right, it's like hosting a dinner party every night without cooking. So this is what she says where it's no longer about, hey, you need to be at a fancy restaurant to get good service, right? It's something that actually should Mm -hmm. be encompassed within the whole experience, not just the food. I do wonder, though, if part of the reason why good service comes with finer dining is because they pay their servers better. Correct. And so at the lower level... It's not that the servers don't want to be better, but they're just not paid enough or given the training to do it. Correct. Because, I mean, we don't really need to go too much in detail over this. Mm-hmm. Like, we kind of know why yeah. this happens, right? Like, retail and service is seen as a revolving door job. It's kind of a stopgap. You do it because it's easy to get hired and yeah. you do it for a little bit of money. And then once you've gotten your degree or whatever, then maybe, or, you've found a quote unquote better, higher paying job, then you move on. One thing, so there were some things that I was thinking about and first and foremost, you brought up the idea of a director in a movie, right? But mm-hmm. do you think we're now at a point where we actually realize that some of the things we interact with, like some of the creative things that we interact with are rarely just about one singular person? Like, I think, is there mm-hmm. a better culture around, hey, you know what? this thing got put out into the world and like it's actually more of the team behind it versus one singular individual. And the reason why I say that is that I know for a fact, and I use sports a lot, as you know, like 
I think we're now at a point in time where everything is so quantifiable, but the traditional measures of success, now that whole path towards achieving that can be quantified. So what I mean is like, you see the stat actually quite often. It's like, oh, when this player is in the lineup, the team's record is 22 wins and three losses. But when this person is out of the lineup due to injury or whatnot, their record drops to five wins and 12 losses. So I think what's interesting about your question is whether there is a greater cultural understanding, because I think that you're correct. Like in sports, the, the coach understands what you're saying. Like the coach knows that in order to get the best results from his team, it's like this combination of players is not just like the all-star and 10 other people. Yeah. That's what you're saying about the stats, right? Basically. Because right now it's like traditionally you would measure, especially in a sport like basketball or football or soccer, right? Like you generally have these core stats you follow, but there are certain players that might be able to influence a game in different ways that maybe just now they're trying to under uncover and they're finding that, oh, you know what? Like actually we can figure out what impact this person has. And what I'm trying to say is that like, if you bring it back into the world of F and B, you do recognize mm-hmm. that, hey, when you have one, I'm not saying they go to this far because I think there's still very much an art and science to it, but it's like, hey, when you have these people working the floor, you do recognize mm-hmm. that their ability to, I don't know, increase sales, right? Or their ability yeah. to to push certain meals because they can tell yeah. the story better. Like that yeah. to me is starting to help maybe create more value for these people and shift the perspective that, oh, the success of a restaurant is really just dependent on the quality of the food. Yeah. I mean, I think like what I was saying, the this metaphor, like a coach understands that about his team. And for a restaurant, I would suspect that the restaurant manager understands that about their restaurant team, about like the front of house and back of house balance, right? But then when it comes to cultural understanding, weirdly, I think this connects to my topic because when it comes to talking about a restaurant or a team very often the media gravitates to single people right Mm -hmm. whether that's the coach or the all-star or the chef or the restaurant founder right so then to go back to like responsibility of people who have power like i think that they have to highlight the fact that this was a team effort if we're trying to increase the understanding that something is comes from many people rather from from just one and one thing that I also find interesting is that in this current world that we're in, so if you go into a restaurant right now, the food that comes out, which I guess you could say is from the kitchen, right? Like how they present it uh, in general is one way to interact with the back of house, right? Mm. And now the front of house becomes the marketing voice. It's like, hey, you know what? Mm. How was my service? Oh, you like got me really excited because this was how they prepared it. And you you told that story for me. And I think now we're also in a place where, and we've discussed this before, is that great product in itself doesn't necessarily just sell itself. You kind of need a marketing angle and a marketing push. So having great front of house in itself becomes a marketing tool. And you and I know, like, I'm sure you've, we've all been to a lot of restaurants and like, you know, even in our backyard, like we know very well the whole Yardbird experience. And one thing I, I realize a lot of people are trying to replicate this Yardbird approach to service. And if you've never been to Yardbird, Mm. one thing that I think they do really well is just like, hey, I may have never met you in my life, but I will treat you and make you feel welcome just like the guy next to me that comes every Wednesday, right? Yeah. And I think that's the thing that you're trying to create. And it's maybe a mix of both training plus just like talent identification like who are the right people that can come in and and replicate the experience i want to do right and it's not easy it's interesting when you talk about yardbird because i would say that the yardbird service is not the kind of service you might associate with like three michelin star finer dining right Mm -hmm. it's not like what's that phrase like white napkin service or whatever it is white tablecloth service yeah white tablecloth service it's different but still really good service and so it like exemplifies not having to be like that really, it's just a different type of cuisine as well. Like Yardbird is just not that kind of cuisine, but it's a mm. good example of 
service in more casual situations. And like you said about EQ, you know, just like identifying what a diner wants and like supplying it before they've even vocalized that. Yep. Anecdotally, besides Yardbird, do you have any stories about really good service that you've gotten? Um, yeah, I mean, like, I think that that's one thing I, I look at a lot when I go to like, quote unquote, finer dining restaurants. It's like the service is actually just as important as the meal itself, because I think that what I find interesting about it is that they put you at ease, they allow you and they understand and read what type of person you are. I think. And yeah. I think that's what I find most interesting. It's like the cerebral, intangible elements of service uh, that really sort of like drive home the experience. And I think that there's certain things that I don't know if, if you've said this before, but it's like, hey, you know what? The food isn't like the best. It's good, but the service is mm-hmm. really good and it's worth going to. Right. Because yeah. the ambiance, yeah, everything. I mean, like, it's also like what you said about product not being good enough. Like, I'm. In some places in the world, like Hong Kong, where there's a lot of food, like you could probably find restaurants that are comparable and like services like going to give it the edge. Yeah. Yeah. When you bring it all together, you're like, man, this is like something very unique. And I think it just makes it so much more memorable where ultimately there's, the, we've kind of talked about this before, where the more vectors in which you can interact with, the more difficult it is because there's more things you have to worry about. But like, in the case of a restaurant, like think about all the different things that can create a memorable experience. It's like the yeah. food, the decor, the front of house and like that sort of service experience, right? And, yeah. you know, in, in many ways, some are a little bit more objective and others are less objective. Like I think most people would objectively be able to define good service, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that that mm-hmm. in itself creates a very strong um it's like locking your claws in in a way so that's why i find it really interesting and like you know what we you and i like know Lindsay from yardbird really well and like i think that that is kind of the next generation of where i think this this sort of duo might start to materialize where it's like you have a really strong back of house obviously matt matt abergell Mm -hmm. like and then you have the front of house with Lindsay and like Lindsay jang and i think this is like the sort of one two punch where you actually have all things considered and that creates such a memorable experience and i think that that's the one thing that you have to realize that i mean matt probably will never listen to this but like matt doesn't give two shits about marketing <laughs> and Lindsay no, just doesn't. happens to be really good at it you have to realize that the success of a restaurant like yardbird comes down to the sort of two-pronged attack that comes from great consistent food plus great marketing and service right there's no denying it yeah um that's about it for me i think that you know for me i i think that we're at a point now where we're starting to both maybe be able to quantify creative output a bit better as well as being just a little bit more familiar with creative processes that we now give a little bit more um attention to the holistic output Right. Not just like, oh, you know what? This is just like one person that did this all. I know we glossed over it a little bit in this article, but really for me, the takeaway is like, even if restaurants understand that, like if people going into FMB understand what you're saying about that two pronged attack, they still have that obstacle of overcoming this cultural feeling around service. And can enough places sort of change that attitude about? working service jobs so that yeah. you have like you know the people who are willing to do it to be in those positions yeah cool yeah, anything any- else nope that's everything for me
That's a good place to cap things off for the day. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at macon.com, M-A-E-K-A-N.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at charisse at macon.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, or Eugene at macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Charisse. And this is Making It Up. <laughs>